Let's get into the word together tonight. Let's open to Judges chapter 14. Last week we got through the first nine verses. I'd like to finish uh, chapter 14 and maybe even do chapter 15. We'll see how things go. But let's just read chapter 14 up to the point where we want to begin tonight. So we're going to look at the first verse. We're just going to read through the first nine verses and then we'll get into it, okay? Remember before we do that this is the last of, of the seven, um, it's the, the last of the seven periods within the time of the judges. And this is a period of time uh, really that Samson, we see as a character on the scene, was a judge of Israel. And unlike the other judges that had armies, that went out to battle. Samson was kind of a lone ranger. And, and so we're going to be looking at his life tonight and next week and maybe even the week following. We'll see how things go. But what we understand that the Samson's life wasn't really one of complete consecration either. Samson was a man who was led by his eyes, led by his emotions, led by his flesh. And it is a, it's true that whenever a believer is led by those things, even though they may be born again. Now, obviously, Samson was saved by faith. He didn't have the wonderful privilege like you and I have of having the Spirit of God indwell us. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith just like we are, but we have this wonderful relationship with the Spirit of God. Now he indwells us, and the Old Testament saints didn't have that that luxury, that wonderful privilege, really. And so the Spirit of God would come upon them at different times. And we see that in the lives of David. We see it in the lives, uh, certainly as we go through Samson's life, we will see that where God, for his own purposes, would come upon an individual to accomplish his will. But we also see that Samson was a, um, a man, uh, of course, given over uh, and not, um, not really faithful. Uh, in, in, all, in everything that he, he did. But God used him, believe it or not, in spite of these personality quirks, besides these sins of his, besides these, you know, Samson was one of these individuals that liked to get right to the edge. You and I, if we're smart, when we get to the edge of something, if you get to, if you go to the Grand Canyon and as you approach the edge of that cliff where it's a couple thousand feet drop, I personally like to stay away like a quarter of a mile just in case the wind blows really hard. But there are people who like to get up right on the edge and they like to see the sand kind of go off their shoes off into the abyss. And, and Samson was one of those individuals. He liked to see how far he could go. And whenever a life is like that, you're in very serious trouble because trouble will come to you much quicker. And you invite it, actually, by, by flirting and, and, and playing with the devil, in a sense. And so Samson was one of these individuals. So, not, not the best example, but the Bible is very clear that he, he, he's in here for a reason. And he did demonstrate some faith in the things that he did, and that's why he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. There's not much mentioned there, but it does say that he, was, he operated by faith, and we'll look at some of those things as we go. But let's look at verse 1 of chapter 14, and let's read down through verse 9, and we'll pick up in verse 10. So it says now that Samson went down to Timnah, and Timnah, if you remember, was just uh, to the west uh, of, um, of the place that he was born in Zorah. It was to the, to the uh, southwest of uh, where he was brought up in the 
the area of the Philistines. And notice, he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. And so he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman. Underline the word seen and underline the word saw because it's all about the sight with this guy. Okay? And many men are like that. And that's one, one of the things that, guys, we have to, as we examine his life, we have to really examine this area of our life. And ladies, too. But for some reason, men seem to be uh, have more of a struggle with this, perhaps, than ladies do. But you've got your own issues, too, right? None of us are, are complete. <laughs> so he saw her, and he told his mom and dad to go down and get her. He says, now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. So his mother and father... Unfortunately, they, you know, they, they try to restrain him. They say, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. In other words, she's good in my sight. Again, another indicator that Samson was more concerned about the outward appearance. He's always looking for the package. He's not looking for what's underneath, and that's a problem. So Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother, they did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would tear a young, apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. In other words, this is another phrase where it, she was good in his sight. That's literally what it means. She was good in his sight. And after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. And he took some of it in his hands, and he went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. And so this is really where we ended last Thursday evening. And it's interesting because we know that Samson took what we call a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a, a vow of consecration. And uh, the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife. We don't know her name, but he appeared, Jesus appeared to Manoah, Samson's mother, before he was born and told him, told her all these things about what was going to happen and how he was going to be a Nazarite from the womb. And even the Lord even pronounced a, a vow on her herself during the time uh, of her pregnancy. And, and that's as far as we know. So she, even she was under this Nazarite vow not to drink wine, certainly not to touch anything dead. And Samson was also not to cut his hair. He's supposed to leave his hair, let, let it grow long, and he was not to touch anything dead. He was to be consecrated. Consecrated really just means set apart. Set apart from something and set apart to something. That's what consecration is. And that's really where Samson failed, unfortunately, pretty miserably. And so, and he gave some of this honey to his mom. And it's interesting that the lion in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter uh, 
11, verse 27, it says that the, the lion is an unclean animal. Levitically speaking, it's an unclean animal. They weren't to eat a lion. And, um, and so here he is, not only killing a lion, which is an unclean animal, but then after some time passes, he, he visits the place where the carcass lay. And by that time, uh, bees had developed a hive inside the carcass. So he comes by and he's touching this unclean animal. He's touching this dead thing in a vineyard that he shouldn't have been in to begin with. Do you see all the, all the signs? It's like all, all these things add up, and it's like you put all of them together, and you got a disaster. It was like a perfect storm. It was only a matter of time. But he was not very faithful to that vow, was he? And so verse 10, it says, So his father went down to the woman. This is the Philistine woman. Her name is not mentioned. And gave a feast there for young men used to do so. And so this would be a wedding feast. It would last approximately one week. And certainly there would be wine and drinking involved. And so here we see Samson, although it's not explicitly mentioned here, based on the... the uh, based upon the uh, compromise already that he's done, I'm sure he didn't just drink water. Samson was a very sensual man. He was led more by his sight, more by his, his feelings. He was, if he had a motto, it would be, if it feels good, do it. That would be Samson's motto. And so he certainly, I'm sure, took part of this wine as they would celebrate. Notice verse 11, it happened that when they saw him, when the Philistines saw him, that they brought 30 companions with him, or to be with him, I'm sorry. And so what this means is that Samson didn't bring his own bridal party. As they were celebrating, the Philistines gave him 30 companions. These were Philistine men. One of them would be his best man. The, the, the friend of the bridegroom. And so here he is being provided for, for these, three, uh, for these uh, 30 men would be provided for him to be uh, friends and, to, and to, to partake in the celebration. And in fact, the, the reason we know that these were Philistine men, uh, not only is it very clear in context, but if you just look down in verse 16 in the same chapter here, Samson's wife, she weeps on him and she says, you have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you've not explained it to me. So we know that these are Philistine men. So go back, going back now to verse 12, it says, then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Now, this is a very bad place to be. The sin that he committed with the lion going into the vineyard, killing the lion, and by God's grace, do you see God, God's grace in this? He's in a place where he ought not to be to begin with. He's not supposed to touch anything, a grape, a raisin, anything, wine, anything related to the grape at all. No fruit roll-ups, nothing, okay? No lifesavers, grape-flavored, nothing. <laughs> so here he goes into this vineyard, and by God's grace... God also makes him accountable, doesn't it? I believe the Lord brought that lion out. And the Lord in his grace gave him the strength at that moment to overpower the lion. But if I were Samson at that moment in time, I would have thought about that. And to be thinking to myself, you know, maybe the Lord brought that lion against me to put a block, to put a hedge in my way. Didn't the angel of the Lord do that when Balaam was on his donkey? If it wasn't for that... That, that, that donkey that, he was, that Balaam was riding on had more spiritual sensitivity than Balaam did. 
Same sort of thing here. You know, he should have realized and woke up to what was happening. But sometimes when the Lord comes upon him to save his life, God in his grace allows him that strength, and he may have taken that as permission. Maybe he looked at the killing of the lying, saying, well, even though I'm doing this thing, it can't be that bad. I mean, after all, God delivered me, and I'm strong and handsome, you know. And so he was in a very bad place. And there's a saying that says, excuse me, sin begets more sin. And so here he is. He poses a riddle to the wedding party, these Philistines. And so when we find ourselves also taking sin lightly, we begin to lose the fear of God, or maybe we've already lost it. And that, again, is a very, very dangerous place to be. In Psalm 111, verse 10, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. It's interesting, in the, um, if you look in, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 111, verse 10, the phrase, his commandments are in italics, which means they weren't in the beginning, they weren't in the original, but they were added for our understanding. So it literally could read, read like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good, a good understanding have all those who do. <laughs> to do God's will, right? What does it say in James? Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving our, yourselves. Because we can, we can, if we only hear and we don't do, there's no power in what we hear if we don't put feet on it. And see, that's where I think myself, and I think that's where many people really struggle in the church, is because we got a lot of head knowledge up here, but we don't always appropriate it into faith decisions that we do. We, we, we think about other people, but we never, you know, we're the last sometimes to really look at uh, these things that we read and really examine our own hearts and be challenged and let it wound us, if necessary, into submission. Because God has a good plan for your life, and he doesn't want you to continue in sin, because sin leads to death. We know that. And so when God gives us his word, it's for life. He wants you to live. He wants your life to be a blessing. Everybody smile. He wants your life to be a blessing. Don't you want your life to be a blessing? Yeah, me too. And so we have to listen. We have to listen to him, just like we did when we were kids and we listened to our parents. Things were good when I listened to my mom. But when I didn't listen to my mom, then I got the Kelvin Klein treatment. The Kelvin Klein belt would come out, and it was a real thin one, too. And she would apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning. So it's important for us to do what the Lord says. And when we do them, what do we do? We experience the blessing of God. And aren't there blessings for obedience? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, let me just read. You can just write this reference down, but let me just read it for the sake of time here. Uh, in, in the very first, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first 11 verses really speak of the prohibitions of the children of Israel when they, when they come into the land, when they come into the promised land. And then in verse 12, it says this, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments, and keep and do them, he says, If you do these things, that the Lord your God will keep you 
will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers, and he will love you, and he will bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock, and the land which he swore to your fathers to give to you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be not, a, not be a male or a female barren among you or among your livestock, and you will take away from all of your, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness, and he will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have been, which you have known, but he will lay them on all those who hate you. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall not have pity for them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. So there are great blessings for obedience. For walking with the Lord, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life, Mary. It's a wonderful life. But when we are disobedient, the Lord chastens. He chastens those whom he loves. And do you think that a father loves to do that? No father loves to do that. It's the least thing that I like to do. I'd much rather be sick in bed than to have to discipline my daughter. But you have to do it, don't we? And God does it to us as well. I love what it says in Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Notice, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Did Solomon, did he despise wisdom and instruction? He did, didn't he? Because the Lord had put a vow on him. He knew very well what that vow, what it entailed and what was required of him. And he didn't really care about it. He just kind of was footloose and fancy free. In Proverbs 15, verse 33, I love this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And I love this part. And before honor is humility. Humility. Samson's character, unfortunately, was not one that exemplified humility. He was a man, and he was strong at when the Lord came upon him. And I'm sure even in the natural, he was probably pretty strong. And when the Lord came upon him, the Lord gave him this wonderful gift to, be, to really be just like a, the Incredible Hulk. And the Bible says that the gift and the callings of God are without repentance. That means when a God gives a gift to an individual, when you are in the womb, God outfitted you. He already had a plan for your life. He already knew what he was going to do. He knew the gifts that you were going to have, and he placed them there in your soul by design. And as you begin to grow and blossom, and as you get to know him, you, you begin to understand those things. You see the gifts working in your life. And what a treasure, what a blessing it is to, for the believer to know the gifts that God has given you. Because then you can actually, once you know that you have that gift, then you start using it as often as the Lord leads you. And be excited and happy about it. And don't covet somebody else's gift. Because not everybody has all the gifts. So Samson, unfortunately, was not one of those people who demonstrated humility. I used to know a, a, a young man because I was a young man at the time, younger man. I'm still a young man, aren't I? <laughs> uh, knew, a, knew a man in college that if I could, if I, thought, if I thought of anybody that I knew that was like a Samson, this, this gentleman was just like Samson. He was very loud, very boisterous, very confident of himself. Good-looking guy. All the ladies loved him. And he was very promiscuous. He was very gifted, one of the most gifted men I've ever known. I, I mean, this guy could do everything. 
No kidding. He was just one of those individuals. It just seemed like the Lord just touched him with everything. And he, he recently passed away. He was like, uh, I think, 49, maybe 51 years old, tragically. And, um, but he was one of these individuals that I believe was like Samson. I wish I didn't have to say that, but, it, but I believe it's true because I knew him for four years. But that's the way Samson was. Notice in verse 12, at the end of verse 12, it says that if you can solve the riddle for me in these seven days of the feast, notice what he said to them, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Notice these are two separate things. Notice, underline them, 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Clothing, as you know, was a way that they would barter in those days. Sometimes you could be paid in clothing. Sometimes something of valuable, something of value, much of the time, was clothing. It wasn't something where you could just go and get it so easily at Kohl's or Nordstrom or Lord and Taylor or something. Or, you know, you, they, they didn't have that kind of thing. So clothing was expensive. And to have several sets of clothing, wow, that's really something. So when he's making this riddle and putting this, this, uh, these 30 changes of linen and 30 changes of clothing on the line, really what he's doing is gambling, isn't he? Do you see that? Because that's literally what gambling means. I actually looked it up in the dictionary just to make sure that my mind was on straight. It, it says, uh, uh, gambling is to play games of chance for money or to take risky action in the hope of a desired result. And isn't that exactly what Sol- or Samson is doing here? He's taking a chance. One of us is going to get it. And he's playing this game. He might as well have been at the roulette table. What does this say about a character? Is gambling wrong? I believe it is, because you're hoping on things that you don't have. What does James say in chapter 4 of his letter? He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time, and certainly Samson was not an old man. He was a young man in his prime, and what is he doing? His life was a vapor, but now he's playing with it. He's, he's gambling. He's, he's promiscuous. He doesn't have any fear of the Lord at all violating all of the vows that he had taken. But what does it say in James? Your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and it vanishes away. Sounds like his life. It was for a short time and it was snuffed out. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And this is where Samson was. This is where he was. But he says in verse 13, but if you cannot explain it to me, he says this to the 30 men that were given to him of the Philistines in this seven-day party, wedding party. If you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And I make that distinction for a reason, because later on we're going to see something. And they said to him, notice, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater, and here's the riddle, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, remember Samson's wife was a Philistine herself, right? They said, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, 
that you may, or that he may explain the riddle to us, or else what? We will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? So here they, they extort her. Do you see this? This is extortion. <laughs> Notice again that Samson's sin and his sport have not only affected him, but it's also affected his betrothed wife, his Gentile wife. It's, it's uh, affected her and her whole family now are in jeopardy because of this silly little thing that he did. Had he not gone in the vineyard, had he not, he probably would have encountered the lion. But now that he had, and he, he's taken the honey from, the, from the, the body of the thing, which is a total mess. And now he has to pose this riddle based on his sin. He kind of makes light of his sin. Have you met somebody who just kind of played, you know, they're just one of these people where, oh, God's a God of grace. It's okay. I know I'm married. You know, I, I mean, I only have three other ladies on the side. That's not a big deal. I'm not like Samson or I'm not like Solomon who had a thousand. I mean, I only have 300. I mean, what's the problem with that? Oh, there's a lot of problem with that. But he puts not only himself, he puts his betrothed wife, he puts her family in jeopardy. Notice that not only did he defile himself, but he also defiled his parents by giving them the honey out of the beast. And sin is like that, isn't it? It not only affects us, but everyone in our sphere of influence, they are affected. It's, it's like leaven. Leaven spread, it spreads, it's, it's yeast and dough. Ladies, you know what that's all about. It's like cancer. It spreads. It metastasizes. It goes other places. It doesn't just stay local. You wish it would, because then you just cut it out and be done with it. And it's like leprosy. Sin has collateral damage. It affects you. If you're involved in sin, especially an ingrained sin, a habitual sin, believe me, you may not think so, but it affects everyone around you, because no longer are you a light. You're a very shaded light. It's like a lamp. A lamp, it's like putting a blanket over a lamp that should be burning brightly. God wants to use each of us to encourage one another. But if I'm walking in sin, I'm, I'm tarnishing that light. And pretty soon, I have, no, I have no value to the body of Christ anymore. Do you see how that works? Sin has collateral damage, and, and it's a sin of omission. I can commit sin, but there's also sins of omission where things that I should be doing, I'm not doing because I'm involved in sin. That's a sin of omission, and and many people are guilty of that. I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. It's not just what we commit. It's what we should be doing that we're not doing, right? And sin is never content with being solo. It wants lots of companions, as many as possible. Notice verse 16. Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. I can almost hear her voice. You don't love me. You've posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you've not explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? This is very interesting. Underline the word love. Because in the Greek, we know there are at least four words that um, our English word is translated love. Right? And in the Hebrew, this word love actually has a sexual connotation to it. And remember, this is their wedding. The seventh day of that wedding is when they would normally consummate the marriage. Right? And so she is saying, you don't really love me. You don't really want me. And Samson, to hear those words, a very sensual man, 
I'm sure the whole reason he saw her to begin with. Remember, he saw her, so he's like looking at her and his eyes are bulging out of his head, right? So she must have been a real knockout. So I'm sure he's looking forward to that seventh day, as most newlyweds do. And there's nothing wrong with that in the Lord, right? But notice, she says, you don't love me because you're not explaining to me the, the riddle. And, and so he says, well, I haven't told anybody. You know, and I can't help but think if she's just manipulating him. Of course she is, right? She's manipulating him because now she's been told by these 30 men, these 30 other Philistines, that if you don't get him to confess what the riddle is, we're going to kill you and your family. So now she's extorted. Now she's fearing for her life. She'll do anything, wouldn't you? So now she's talking to him and talking to him on a level he can understand because he's a man who's got his eyes, unfortunately, in front of everything else. So he obviously had a weakness for women. And not only this, but we'll see this in chapter 16, either next week or the following. We see this also in Delilah, because uh, Delilah was his next conquest. And you, you know, it's interesting that many people have buttons. If you're married long enough, you know the buttons that each of you have. You know what buttons to push on your husband or your wife. Just to, you know, if you really want to set them on edge, you know you've got like a palette. You can pull out and say, boy, I really, really made me mad today. I'm going to pull this one out of the bag just because. Have you ever done that? We've all done it, right? So this was one of Samson's buttons and he caved because she pressed him. Notice that. And it happened, notice, that she wept on him, verse 17, uh, for seven days and while the feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day when they were supposed to consummate their marriage, right? On the seventh day that he told her finally because, notice, she pressed him. Underline that word pressed. She pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. And so um, let me read something to you. This word pressed literally means to be in distress. It means constraining. It means you are just pressed sore. It is really, you're in a strait. And it's the exact same word that we see over in Judges chapter 16. We're going to get there in a week or so when we look at Delilah. Let me just read to you what it says when, when Samson finally goes into Delilah. What does it say? She came, it came to pass that she, Delilah, she pestered him. Now, this is not his wife. Okay, we'll, we'll get to her in a minute. But this is after his hopes of marrying this woman have been dashed. He goes to another woman, another Philistine woman, another uncircumcised woman, that she, verse 16, so Judges 16, verse 16, she pestered him. Under, you know, if, if you just flip over one page and, and underline the word pestered, it's the same exact word. She pestered him and she pressed him daily. She pestered him with her words and pressed him. There it is again. So that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart. It's the same exact word that we're looking at here in verse 17, that she pressed him. This woman pressed him sore. She henpecked him. <laughs> she, she really went after him. So verse 18, so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, they said to him, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And right then the cat was out of the bag, pun intended. 
What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. And basically what Samson is doing here is really ridiculing his wife for, um, for caving into these guys. But she didn't, he didn't know that these men were going to kill her if, they didn't tell, if she didn't tell them the riddle, the solve of the riddle. And so Samson here is calling, in a sense, if you had not plowed with my heifer. For one thing, a heifer doesn't really plow. A heifer will often uh, grind grain on a wheel, you know, something like that. But when, when you're in a field plowing, it's always the big oxen. They're always yoked together, right? They're yoked together. Two strong oxes of the same caliber are out in the field, but a heifer doesn't plow, so he's insinuating not only that his wife, she was in, in, the, in deceit and deceptive in this whole thing, but he's also implying that they had done this by deceit themselves, that they somehow uh, worked this out between them and his wife to deceive him. And Samson wasn't able to bridle his tongue. This is another indicator, another strong indicator, another unfortunate indicator. A person who can control his or her mouth will often have control over the rest of their body. What does James say? We know this very well. In James chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, let me just read it to you. You can write the reference down. James 3 verse 2, it says, For we all stumble in many things, and if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect or mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large, you are driven by fierce winds, yet they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue, what, is a little member and boasts great things. How great a forest a little fire kindles. And so Samson was, again, he, he didn't have control over his mouth. He's always running in his mouth. That's probably what got him into a lot of the trouble. No self-control. And, and usually somebody who is, doesn't have control over the mouth generally doesn't have control over anything else either. So, verse 19, then the Spirit of the Lord, notice, by grace, <laughs> I almost wonder if the Holy if they, they should have just put there, you know, the scribes should have just put, uh, then the Spirit of the Lord, by grace, came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, and he took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house. So uh, first off, let's look at the word Ashkelon. That's, that's a, a town right on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean. It was a Philistine city. It was one of the big five Philistine cities. The other ones were Ashdod, Gaza, and Gath, and Ekron. It's about 23 miles south of Timnah, southwest of Timnah, again along the coast. But notice, he, he went down to Ashkelon, to another Philistine city. He killed 30 men. Why? Because he lost his bet. Now he's got to come up with the clothing, which he didn't have to begin with. So he goes down and he kills these men. And it doesn't appear that he gave them everything either. Did you notice up above in, in, in the verses above, in, in the 13th verse, it says that he said to them, those 30 men, those Philistines, he said, if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30, that's what was on the line here, was 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. It's interesting that even in Samson's sin and compromise, God would use him 
to bring about judgment upon the Philistines. And notice, he didn't even follow through with what he was supposed to. He gave them the 30 changes of clothes, but it doesn't mention anything about the 30 changes of linen. So not, not only was he a, had a loud mouth and didn't have control over himself, but he wasn't a man of his word either. He was supposed to provide 30 garments of the 30 lint pieces of linen and the 30 changes of clothing. All he gives them is the 30 changes of clothing. So not even a man of his word either. Sounds like a really nice guy. And yet, God in his grace, for some reason, saw Samson. And the Bible says, in the very last verse, it says that in these times, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so God is looking for any man. And he saw something in Solomon, or I keep calling him Solomon. He saw something in Samson that was, that was, there was something there that God could work with. And God was going to work out his will, even in spite of this man's compromise and his sin and his rebellion. God was still going to use him. And to me, that's the mystery that why God even uses me. Why does he, why does he use you? You know, we, we, may, we may not have sins that are out on our sleeves like, like, like Samson did. I mean, all of his sins were out for everyone to see. Your sins may be internal, things that nobody knows, but you and God. But God knows. We can't fool him. But notice the grace of God that he would use a man, even in his compromise, to accomplish God's will. Now, what was God's will? God was going to bring judgment upon the Philistines. And why? Is God a racist? I've often heard that. Is God a racist? No, he's not a racist. Well, why did he pick on the Philistines? Why did he drive out the Canaanites? Well, it, it's a long story. You want to sit down and we'll talk? But actually, it's quite simple. It's about sin. God doesn't look at color of skin. He doesn't look at nationality. What he does look at is the heart. That's all God is concerned about is your and my heart. He could care less about anything else. Why? Because we're all created in his image. There's one blood. We all came from Adam. We all came from Noah because Noah's sons and, his, and their wives populated the earth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All of us in this room come from one of those three. Do you know that? One blood. And within that DNA strain, there's enough variability to cover every different color of skin, every different uh, thing that we have, all the different characteristics. And does that surprise you that there is such a wonderful God like that? He does that. Within the fish, you know, within fishes, you know, he's, he's got so many different varieties, but they're all the same. They're all fish, but they're, they're so many different. There's, there's a big difference between a hammerhead and angelfish. There's a big difference between a great white shark and a goldfish. There's a lot of variability between us. And God sees one. He doesn't see many. You're all from one blood. The sooner America gets their eyes off of all this stuff that's going on right now and realize that we're one blood, the better off we will all be. But guess what? There's sin. In every single person. I digress. <laughs> but notice, Samson's wife, verse 20. So Samson doesn't even consummate the marriage. He's, he's angry. So now he, he goes down, he loses the bet, he goes down to Ashkelon, kills the men, doesn't even follow through on his deal. He gives the clothing and he's just ticked off. So he takes off back home to mom and dad. He doesn't even stop. I mean, at that point, he's just so livid. He could care less about consummating the marriage. He's thinking, I'll come back some other day when I'm not so mad 
So he takes off. So the father, after some time passes, notice what it says in verse 20. Samson's wife was given to his companion. The companion that was given to him, which was another Philistine. And I bet the father's going, oh, I'm thankful that he left. He never consummated the marriage. He took off. I didn't want him anyway. I'd much rather have him, you know, be married to, you know, Philistine handsome hunk number one. Right? But instead of entertaining the Philist or instead of instead of entertaining the Philistines, now he was going to be at war with them. And notice that the Lord intervened in his life, didn't he? He kept him from making the one of the biggest mistakes in his life. Because then he would be joined to a race of people that God had pronounced judgment on. Again, because they were Philistines, because they were a non-Semitic people, was God again, was he a racist? No, it's about sin. It's about sin. They had been sinning for a long time. That's one of the reasons why God had brought them up out of Egypt into the area of Canaan. He gave them over 400 years at least, and, and more than that, to turn from their idolatry and their wickedness and their sacrificing of babies and their wickedness. And they would not. And God says, it's enough. And I don't care who they were. If they were all collectively engaged in that sin, God, God does not look at color of anything. He looks at the heart. And he said, I'm done with this. I've given them ample time to repent. A scary thing, isn't it? God knows. He knows when we've crossed that line. We don't always know when we cross that line. We look at other people and we see them getting away with murder. And then we step out, we, we, we go one, you know, two miles over the speed limit and we got the gumballs chasing us. And you're like, give me a break, Lord. I was only going six miles over. You can usually go five. They won't bust you, but maybe six or ten. So they pull, you get pulled over, and you're like, so many people have gotten away with so much worse. And you get the ticket, and you get the points off your license, and you have to go to the school, and you have to be humiliated and fail the test. So, so Samson is just livid. And God intervened in his life to protect him from making this huge mistake. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about that, doesn't he? He said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, Samson is certainly acting like an unbeliever, but he is an Israelite. One of God's chosen, one of God's chosen people of the tribe of Dan. God still loved him. God still had a plan for him. But he would not always, would he? There were certain things where Samson did things, but it was almost like by accident. He kind of was just going by his feelings, and God says, I can still accomplish my will through this man, but boy, he's like a, he's like the, he's like a river, just going like this and up and down, right? And God has his way. He can do it. It's a mystery, isn't it? The mystery of godliness. <laughs> I wonder... So, we ought not to flirt with sin as he did. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, what does it say? It says, abstain from every form of evil. Every form of evil. So we need to be careful. Even in the business dealings that we do. You know, whether you're in business, whether you have a relationship with somebody, don't be unequally yoked. I've known people who have gone, and gone into business and someone claimed to be a Christian, but really weren't, wasn't a Christian. Or maybe they are, but they, they were not surrendered to the Lord. And boy, it became a mess really quick. 
But when you got two people who are really submitted to the Lord, that's why marriage is so wonderful. You know, when you're, when you're equally yoked, it's beautiful. And you still have problems, but it's very doable. Very, you can work it out. God can do it. No problem. But boy, when you have one person who's phony or is acting like a Christian, the other one is sold out for the Lord, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. And, and, and much less if you're married to an unbeliever. If you can live with them as a believer, praise the Lord. But, you know, you're, the unbeliever could leave you. And then, you know, you, that, that's fine. Let's see here. I think... You know, we can be around unbelievers, we can have friends, we can have acquaintances, but we need to be careful that they don't influence us. We need to influence them. Let me end on this point. We'll get to chapter 15 next week, and probably 16, hopefully. (laughs) Samson ought to have been an influence, a good influence to those 30 men, certainly to this wife and this family. But instead, he just saw a woman led by his eyes. And we, last week we looked at you know, Matthew's gospel and other areas in the scripture where it talks about for even a man to look at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. And ladies, when you look at a man... You know, same thing is true. It doesn't matter. And in our culture, a man looking at another man or a woman looking at another woman and lusting for them, you've committed adultery. But Samson should have been an influence on her if he was really walking with the Lord, if he was really committed and consecrated to the Lord like he was supposed to be consecrated to the Lord. So we have to be really careful. I remember a number of years ago now, there was a a man at Eastman School of Music. I was going there for graduate school. And I lived in an apartment building right across the street from the Eastman School. And there was another gentleman and young guy like myself at the time who was in the same guitar department and really gifted really gifted individual. This, this guy was one of those individuals, just very, he was smart. He was not only smart intellectually, but he was very gifted. I mean, a wonderful guitar player, better, much better than I was. And he wasn't a believer, but I really liked the guy. I really liked him. And I found that as we started to hang out together, certainly I shared with him. Certainly I talked to him about Jesus. But it became apparent as time went on that he was really having more of an influence over me than I was over him. He was was tolerant to listen, but I found a lot of his mannerisms, a lot of the things, he's very materialistic. And I found myself kind of adopting that same thing. And the Lord stopped me dead in my tracks one day. And he just spoke to my heart. He just, you know, in, in a nutshell, he just basically said, you know, Rob, you're supposed to be an influence to him. As the believer, you need to be an influence in him, but what's happening is his lifestyle, his personality is overruling you, and you're starting to adopt those very same things. And in that moment, I knew that I had to stop hanging out with him, and I did. I just kind of slowly drifted away from him. And 
that needed to happen because if I, if I wasn't, um, I'd already told him everything, but he was having more of an influence on me. And see, that's what happens when people are unequally yoked. And I love how the Lord intervened in so many ways in Samson's life. All along these chapters, these, this chapter we've been looking at, you know, the Lord is putting these hedges and roadblocks in his way. And if he was astute enough, if he was spiritually discerning, he would have recognized, you know what? <laughs> I'm not in the right place. And God in his grace intervened, even with the lion. Have you thought about that? He was in a vineyard. He shouldn't have been there. What was he doing in the vineyard? What do you do when you're in a vineyard? When those grapes are practically busting off the vine. He's in there eating grapes. And the Lord's going, really, Samson? Remember when the Lord prepared a fish for, Noah, or for um, Jonah? <laughs> I think the Lord prepared a lion. But the Lord also said, you know what? I'm going to give you that supernatural strength. I'm going to send you a hindrance. Get the point, Samson. Are you getting the point? As he's tearing that lion apart with his hands, I can almost hear the Lord knocking on his head. You getting it? <laughs> no. I, I don't get it. And he's just tearing the thing apart like a man. Like a man. <laughs> and he should have known better. But the Lord in his grace, doesn't he allow, he comes upon him in spite of him. And I find that true in my own life. And I love that about the Lord. But you know what? That's never a license to, to, to be in a place like Samson. That's why these chapters are really, there's more written about Samson, I think, than any other judge. There's four entire chapters devoted to him. And I think there's a lot here for us to learn. Especially as men. But even women, there's, there's lessons here for all of us. Being in places we ought not to be, that we know we're not supposed to be. And then the Lord sends something. Uh, uh, you know, I love that verse where it says that, you know, the Lord, um, you know, will with the temptation give us a way of escape. I think there was a lot of temptation in Samson's life, and the Lord allowed things to come just to give him a way of escape. The lion was a way of escape. But he continued, and he continued after he ripped the thing apart, and then time goes by, and he comes back, and he sees a lion with the honey and the, the bees, takes it out of there, he eats it. Later on, we're going to see in the next chapter that he, you know, actually in, the, in two chapters from now, he's going to cut his hair. Just doesn't really care about the consecration. See, we need to, be, we need to care about being consecrated. I think that's one of the things we can take away from Samson's life that we all ought to really examine again. Lord, Lord, consecrate me. I live in a world, and God knows the world that we live in. He knows. Folks, let's make a, a decision tonight. You know, it's so easy for us to come, and I'm so glad we can come together. But do you understand, and I think we all do, we all understand this, and we'll end, that if we, if we don't act put, actively put these things that we read into our life, we have to think about these things. We can't go home tonight and just think, oh, that was an okay study, or that was a great study. Whatever you thought of the study, it doesn't really matter. Think about what we read in the, in the lessons. Hopefully we can learn from this man's life. Take it in. Read it again. Listen to it again. 
and internalize these things. Say, Lord, change me. I don't want to be like Samson. I don't want to be a man who you've, you've, you've destined to do great things in me and then I'm, I'm just kind of aloof and doing my own thing. Think of how much God could have done through him. In his, in his rebellion, in his sin, in his compromise, God used him to kill at least 4,030 Philistines. We'll do the math next week, but it's 4,030 roughly, give or take, a handful. How much could he have done with an obedient Samson? Uh, a, a Samson that was really sold out for the Lord. He did all that in spite of him. What could he have done when, he, when the Lord would come upon him with great strength and, and he would just, I mean, he could be doing that every day. He could be going after a thousand every day if it wasn't for his little jaunts off into the, in Timnah and other things, looking at the ladies and hanging out in the vineyards. God could have probably done a lot more. Because the Philistines were a plague in the sight of Israel all the way through David. It wasn't until David, much, much later, that they were finally subdued. And they were still around during the time of Hezekiah. They kind of lingered. And they were a problem because they were influencing with their false gods and, with their, and the, the Hebrew men were enticed by the ladies. So let's be careful, and let's make a determination tonight. Say, Lord, change me. In fact, let's do that. Let's stand together, and let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to make us non-Samsons and Samsonettes. <laughs> Amen? Samsonettes and Samsons. Father, we, we come before you tonight very simply just asking, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to... To, as, as we read the word, Lord, we know that your word says that these things are written for our nurture. They're written there for our learning, for our admonition. Lord, to instruct us in righteousness and to warn us even, Father. And so, Lord, we take this tonight, Lord. We realize we live in a culture right now that Samson is playing around with. Lord, we live in that kind of culture. And we live in that kind of environment, Lord, when there's a lot of, there's so much lukewarmness in the church, you know, just in the church in general, not necessarily here, but even including us, Lord, including me, there's, there's lukewarmness in the church in America. And Lord, Samson thrived in a, in a place like that of compromise. Lord, help us to resist these things and have our eyes firmly fixed on you, God. Please do that work in us. Make us holy and acceptable in your sight. We know that we are if we're in Christ. But Lord, practically speaking, every single day, help us to be about your business. Help us to get our eyes off of other things and onto you, Lord. And to be more in your word and spending less time with the media and all the junk that's going around. So much deception, God. Please give us truth and clarity in these times that we live in. May we be able to say, thus saith the Lord and bypass all the heartache. Lord, that I know for myself, it's such a heartache as I look around our country, especially our country, Lord. The world's a mess, but even in our own country, Lord, how far we have slipped, Lord. We have slipped so far. Help us, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.